I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, May 14th, 2012. Okay, yeah, oh man. Why is it in radio you always feel like you're chasing a deadline and you never really quite make it? Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There's no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We're doing the comparative work, doing the job of a Berean, if you would. Uh, you, you find the story of the Bereans in the book of Acts, and it says about them that they were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians because, well, when the Apostle Paul preached the gospel to them, they compared his gospel uh, to the written Word of God that they had, that would be the Old Testament, and found it to be true. So we're doing the comparative work to see if what pastors and popular teachers and church leaders, <clears throat> fearers, are com you know what they're saying to see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's word says in context. It's not politically correct. I got to tell you, if you're new to the program, you're going to need to give uh, Fighting for the Faith three, four weeks uh, before you're going to completely get it or get used to it. And the reason why is because well, this is old school apologetics and theology. And what I mean by that is, is that uh, my mentors in the faith and the men that I look up to in church history, uh, they didn't have a gag order put on them. They, you know, <laughs> like far from it. And as a result of it, you know, uh, the, uh, the theologians I'm used to reading are used to, well, let's just say that they have a tendency to say it straight and to say it in a way that to an American ear who's been sheltered from having their feelings hurt uh, by today's politically correct society, this is going to just sound like, well, it's it's the, uh, the audio equivalent of a cold bucket of water to the face at times. And so <clears throat> you got to understand, it's not that I'm trying to shock you for the sake of shock. 
I'm not trying to upset you for the sake of upsetting you. In fact, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become upset, at first at me. And I get it. I get it. And the reason why is because I'm probably telling you things that you haven't ever heard before. You've been happy and content in your church bubble, and maybe the church you're attending is uh, of the seeker-driven stripe, and you've never been confronted with your sins. You've never been challenged to see if what your leader is saying actually squares with God's Word. And so when I do the comparative work and your pastor comes up short, or people you look up to come up short, and you realize they're not handling God's Word right— it's perfectly natural for you to want to come after me first. Well, it's that gunky head Rosebro. I mean, everybody knows he's a blogger. He lives in his mom's basement. He uh, spends his day on a beanbag eating Cheetos. Uh, it's still wearing his Star Wars jammies. And, you know, I get it. That's called an ad hominem argument, by the way. And, I, you know, listen, sometimes you just got to take the hits. But the reality is if you stop, if you take some time to listen to what I am saying with an open Bible, the funny thing that's, that could potentially happen to you is that you might go from being not so happy with me to not, to not being so happy with your pastor, which would be a good thing if, and, I, and here's what I mean by that, if your pastor's not giving you the goods, Sunday after Sunday, if he's not rightly preaching and handling God's word, but is twisting it, scratching uh, your t your tingly ears, telling you what you want to hear, making up stuff in order to basically craft his own theology, well, then if that's the case and you start to realize, wait a second, I've been schnookered, then that's a good thing, Okay. Um, that's a good thing because, you know, the first step in you not being deceived is realizing you can trust God's word and it's the job of a pastor to rightly handle God's word. No pastor in the kingdom of God, no pastor who is truly, truly a Christian pastor uh, would take God's word and mangle it, mar it, twist it, and, or tell you what you want to hear. The job of a pastor is to preach the word as it's given. He doesn't have the right to make stuff up. He doesn't have the right to pour in his own meaning. He doesn't have the right to just do whatever feel, feels best to him. The job of the pastor is to rightly handle, rightly cut, rightly divide the word of truth. And I know this because, well, that's what God's word commands pastors to do. And so if your pastor ain't doing that, if he's off on his own tangent, building his own little kingdom, somehow equating, you know, uh, drawing a crowd with growing the kingdom of God. By the way, there's a big difference. There is a huge difference between drawing a crowd week after week and actually proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name so that people are brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of the sins. In fact, we're going to talk a little bit about that today. I'm looking at the program here and realizing, oh man, I'm going to have to do things a little out of order. Normally when I start a program off and you know we get into the program proper, if I have email, I'll do the email first. Um, but I've got an email that I, I need to answer, but in order to answer it, it it's going to take a longer segment. So I'm, I'm going to have to do like email after the first break. 
Um, I got a Patricia King update. By the way, uh, Mayan calendar update. Uh, those of you who are, you know, who are stock, I don't know why you would stock up on uh, end of the world uh, food supplies if the end of the world, if you believe the world was going to end in December. But um, a lot of talk hubbub out there, a lot of people out there claiming Jesus is coming back in the year 2012. And well, what's their evidence? The Mayan calendar has come to an end. Uh, yeah, we're 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 bumping up against the end of the Mayan calendar. Not really. Um, <laughs> I I've claimed here on the radio that uh, the the reason why the Mayan calendar ended in December of 2012, that particular Mayan calendar that they found, was because they ran out of room. I mean, and, and this is what I've been saying, I almost flippantly, but um, now I've got real. Hard archaeological evidence to to back up the claim. So I got a my uh, Mayan calendar thing. I got a TD Jakes update, and then I got an email that I got to get to. That's kind of a follow up question uh, to last week's lecture on resistance is futile. You will be assimilated into the community. I so just so you know, uh, you know that that thing is that lecture is well, it's extremely popular. And uh, it's the email that I've been getting from people is positive that it's been eye opening that it's uh, opened their eyes to some things that they've never seen before and some people are happy that well to know that this is not something new but that uh, what we're dealing with is a, a time honored tradition known as anti enlightenment or counter enlightenment philosophy. This is nothing more than a new face on an old philosophical mem, if you would, and uh, that that is is that what we're dealing with here is skeptical irrationalism. That's what this is, and unfortunately, it's embedded itself into the seeker-driven movement, into the emergent church movement, and uh, that which is means that it's not good because biblical Christianity is not compatible with. Um, Kant, uh, with with Kant, Hegel, and their epistemology and anti enlightenment uh, philosophy, it's not compatible with it because the idea is that in their worldview, in the anti enlightenment worldview, um, reason is somehow a bad thing. Um, reason gets in the way of reality, apparently, and uh, and so the idea is is that uh, you know it 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 the way Kant put it, he has this. This barbed wire, electrified fence and wall between the noumenal and the phenomenal. I I know that if you haven't read Kant's uh, critique of pure reason, then you you may not know what I'm talking about here. But what's funny is is that um, for a long time I actually thought that that was the you know the 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 break between the noumenal and the phenomenal was between um, spiritual knowledge and earthly knowledge. The, 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 au contraire. That's actually not the case. Uh, the The idea is is that you can't know anything outside of the uh, uh, of the subject. There is no such thing as the object. It's a complete collapse of the subject object distinction. As a result of it, you, you, you know, truth is something that's experienced. It's subjective. It's felt. And reason somehow is a bad thing and gets in the way. And and uh, th- that epistemology and worldview ain't compatible with biblical Christianity. I don't care how you, s- you slice it. It's not compatible with it. And so for a long time, Christianity has had to deal with rationalism. You know, it, the, those people, those uh, people who called themselves theologians, 
who were uh, overtly influenced by the uh, by the age of reason and the enlightenment and as a result of it they had this you know this complete bizarre idea that you know miracles are not possible because you know that would be god breaking into this closed system of time and space and thing and that would never happen so miracles are so we've had to deal with rationalism for a long time but now we're actually having to deal with full-blown irrationalism this is a decadent decadent philosophy and what i mean by that is is that it uses words and reason to argue against the meaning of words and reason and it's, <laughs> it's like the suicide of thought i mean yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, that's what we're dealing with. So, you know, it's, but um, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Seeker Driven Movement during our email segment after the first break. So if it sounds like I'm a little bit all over the board, it is because I am. By the way, our sermon review today, we're going to be reviewing an Ed Young sermon from uh, Fellowship. Um, I don't. I hesitate to call it a church from uh, Fellowship down in Dallas, Texas. Uh, Fewer, uh, you know, leader Ed Young. Uh, did a um, presentation during what would normally be considered the sermon time. Uh, he's been doing a series of these lectures on wild, where he's brought wild animals in. And so we're going to listen to part five of the wild um, lecture series there at uh, Fellowship in, Ta- in Dallas, Texas. And, uh, boy, that's going to be interesting. Um, <laughs> man, I feel like I'm all over the board today. Ah! <laughs> It's like there's so much I want to talk about. And as a result of wanting to talk about so much, I'm not talking about anything. Also, I've got an emergent update. So I want to get to T.D. Jakes. Oh, man, will I be able to get to T.D. Jakes today? Hmm. I don't know. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay, so here's the deal. If it sounds like I'm a little bit scattered and all over the place, well, it's because I'm a little bit scattered and all over the place. Maybe it would help if we just dive into the program and – We'll see if it can sort itself out along the way. So uh, with that, here we go. So have you ever wondered how Patricia King would argue that God wants you to be wealthy? (laughs) Well, wonder no more. Um, Here's Patricia King talking about, well, receiving wealth and her attempted a biblical argument to defend the concept. Yeah, listen in. Hi there. Someone has given me a question. Um, it says, Patricia, I have always felt that to seek wealth was unchristian. Can you help me understand the mindset the Lord wishes us to have toward money? Now, first of all, the scripture says to seek first his kingdom yeah. and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto us. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, we got a problem here. Already we got a problem. Oh, man. See, I, I was thinking that maybe if we just dove into the program that that would somehow get rid of my scatterbrained problem for the day. Uh, by the way, uh, that verse, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, is found in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, Matthew chapter 6, to be exact. If you have your Bible, flip on over there. I will be reading from the English Standard Version, ESV, uh, the translation that I lovingly refer to as the English Sanctified Version. And, um, hmm, Jesus here um, lays out some very interesting things that we might want to consider as we look at this 
passage, this well, because here's the reason why: because our the three primary rules for sound biblical interpretation they are context, context, and context. And so you'll notice that Patricia is quoting this verse out of context. And you gotta tell you, you know, talk about receiving wealth. If I had, you know, ten bucks or every time I've heard somebody rip this passage, this verse out of context, well, I'd be receiving a lot of wealth. So let me go back and let me play Patricia King. Notice what what she's doing here so you can see how the out of context rip makes it sound like this passage is talking about, well, receiving wealth, but it's really not really about that. Here, listen in again. Now, first of all, the scripture says to seek first his kingdom yeah. and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto us. Yeah, so, so apparently that's all about wealth. Well, let's take a look at it in context. The verse in question, by the way, I think is Matthew 6.33. Yes, it is. But we're going to back it up. We're going to back up some things here. Uh, Matthew 6, verse 19 is where we're going to start so that we can get a good running start at looking at the immediate context of this verse so we can understand what's going on here to see if Patricia King is rightly handling God's word. I don't think I've yet to hear her really do that. Anyway, here's what it says. Matthew 6, uh, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Hmm. Well, <laughs> you throw that into the mix, and all of a sudden it sounds like Jesus is contradicting Patricia King. Go with that thought. Trust me on this one. Go with that thought. So do not lay up. This is Jesus talking. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." So the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that in you, that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will just be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. See, there's another right there in the immediate context. We got two verses, two sentences from Jesus that sound like they're running exactly the opposite of what Patricia King is about to say here. Go with Jesus on this. Trust me on this. Go with Jesus. Verse 25. So therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink. Nor about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Mm -hmm. So he's talking here about being anxious about, ah, where's my next meal coming from? I can't afford clothes and you know things like that, right? So look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? In fact, actually, being anxious takes away hours from your lifespan. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. So the idea here is that somebody's anxious and worried. Ah, what am I going to do? Don't worry. Your heavenly father loves and cares for you. Notice 
that you know the lilies of the field are clothed so radiantly as a gift from God. They don't earn it. It's just given to them. That's the idea. So Jesus is chastising them for having no faith in the God who made them, right? Okay. So, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is so in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Your heavenly Father will take care of you. Which things are he, is he referring to here? Well, food, clothing, shelter, your daily bread, needs like that. It's not talk, Jesus here isn't promising wealth. He's promising to meet your daily needs, your get to give you your daily bread and put clothes on your back, things like that. So uh, when we look at this in context, first of all, Jesus is chastising them for not having faith and telling them that they can lo- trust their Heavenly Father who loves and cares for them. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. These things will be added to you. Don't worry about it. It's all gift, right? That's what Jesus is saying, and he's not talking about wealth. So with that knowledge in mind, with the full context or the immediate context within sight, let's see what Patricia King does with this. Remember, the question is, tell us about the mindset about receiving wealth from God. By the way, uh, Matthew 6.33 isn't about wealth. And so... We can go after the things that God has in his kingdom because they're for us. Jesus said um, that... that. Oh, man, let me back this up. That is just terrible. <laughs> I want you to hear her in context. I don't want to rip her out of context. <laughs> his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto us. And so we can go after the things that God has in his kingdom because they're for us. Jesus said... We can go after the things that are in God's kingdom because they're for us? That's not what the verse says. Um, that that the Father has chosen gladly to give us the kingdom. So we get to explore the kingdom and ask of the Lord in regards to everything he's given us in the kingdom. We get to explore the kingdom. So it's like going on a shopping spree in the kingdom of God. Explore it and then ask him for the things we like after we've seen them. How are you getting that out of the Sermon on the Mount? So it's not like we're seeking like, oh, I've got to seek, seek, seek for wealth sort of thing. We seek the kingdom, but wealth is part of the kingdom. Oh, yeah. See, that makes sense. Seek first the kingdom of God. And since the kingdom of God is full of wealth, you can then... <sighs> so if we're going to live in an abundant life according to how it is in, in, in heaven... Now, remember John Bevere's Easter sermon where basically you're going to be judged if you're not wealthy then we have to look at this issue of wealth because the Bible's full of it. God calls us to prosper. Well, actually, the Bible isn't full of it. I would say you are. He says to pray in this way, your kingdom come, your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Now, when you explore the scriptures regarding heaven, you'll see that there's no poverty in heaven. There's only abundance. There's extravagance. There's wealth. There's glory. It talks about even the streets being paved with gold, crystal sea, uh, sapphire uh, streets. It talks about, you know, emerald rainbows and things like that. We're talking about tremendous extravagance. Never 
in heaven will you find any poverty. There isn't such an animal in heaven. There is no spirit of poverty. There's no spirit of lack. There's nothing that's... Now notice, the verse that she mentioned doesn't say any of this. This is a clear case of eisegesis. Rip the verses out of context and then just pour into it whatever you want. This is not exegesis where you're exegeting out what the passage says. She's just... Well, it's all about, we can go after wealth because, you know, this verse that I ripped out of context says this, and here's what it means because I'm going to pour my own meaning into it. Has no idea, she has no clue what God the Holy Spirit actually said in those texts, yet, let alone Jesus. You know, she's just making stuff up here. It's low quality. In fact, when God even created the earth, he didn't create the earth to be, um, poor and and underdeveloped and that it was beautiful it was man's sin that brought it down and now he's inviting us in christ to explore the glory of the kingdom so really where's a verse that says that jesus is inviting us in christ to explore the glory of the kingdom as if we're somehow going on some kind of a you know kingdom shopping spree i would call it more exploring or or receiving wealth rather than seeking it because sometimes when people say seek wealth it you know they get the idea that we're seeking it above jesus or or above his kingdom we're no, not no no we're just cozying up to jesus so that we can get um wealth from him i mean doesn't this turn the bride of christ into a gold digger you, you know what i'm saying you know there, there's well there's folks out there that are called gold diggers i mean these are gals who marry guys who have a lot of money, not because they necessarily love the guy, but because, well, they like his really big bank account. They like his really big house. They like his really big yacht. They like his uh, private jet. They like uh, the fact that uh, because he has all of this wealth, uh, you know, they can get a three, four carat, maybe 15 carat diamond and, and you know, and, and have all these amazing experiences in the wealth. And so what happens is, is that that category of woman who marries a guy specifically for his wealth, well, they're called gold diggers. So what Patricia King is describing here is, well, she believes that somehow the bride of Christ, the church, well, we're marrying Jesus for his wealth. So this turns the bride of Christ into a gold digger. You cozy up to Jesus because, well, Jesus is the dude with all the bucks. I mean, the heavenly glory bucks. I mean, he makes Daddy Warbucks from, you know, the Orphan Annie series. Well, look like a pauper. I mean, so, yeah, this is turning the bride of Christ into a gold digger. I'm not going to put it above Jesus, but we need to understand, like, I seek for truth in the Bible. Do you seek for truth? You know, it says, seek those things that are above. Yeah, yeah. See, I can seek for wealth because I seek for truth. You know, again, the bride of Christ is a gold digger in Patricia King's way of thinking. Where Christ is seated, it says in Colossians 3, seek the things that are above. Yeah. Well, in the kingdom, there is wealth, and so we can seek wealth because it's part of the kingdom if that makes sense to you yeah it makes perfect sense you're a heavenly gold digger so it's not unchristian to seek after the things that are given to us in covenant but we just want to make sure that our priority of worship is right and that we're living yeah worship right so that you can get the big bucks from jesus and receive wealth from him even though the bible actually doesn't teach it and there was two instances in that passage that i read just read in context from the sermon on the mount that basically said don't seek after 
those things. Anyway, all right, we're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Uh, we will be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> of Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Today we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 3, verse 7 from the Furtick Audaciously Revised Translation of the Bible. Here's what it says. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of bloggers! Who warned you to flee from your mother's basement? Thank you for listening to Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. You spend some serious time staring at a digital screen, probably around eight hours a day. There's work, video games, surfing the web, and every other function of life on all our devices. Hey, we live in an age where everything is digital. It's just par for the course, right? But have you ever thought about the impact all that has on your eyes? 
All that screen time is going to affect your vision. Maybe now, maybe later, but it's gonna happen. We're talking everything from eye fatigue and headaches to eyes that are so dry and irritated, they could make even the techiest dude alive want to go analog. It's pretty hard to do the stuff you love if your eyes are feeling exhausted or burnt out. But it's not like less time in front of a screen is an option these days. So what do you do? It's like you need some crazy awesome invention that can help your eyes stay fresh and protect them so that you can get the most out of your digital consumption. Introducing Gunner Optics. Gunners are these super sweet computer glasses that make it easier and more comfortable to enjoy all your digital activities. There's seriously some NASA grade stuff going on here, but basically they have this uber smart lens technology that improves your visual experience, protects your vision, and helps prevent wear and tear on your eyes. Gunner's yellow lenses filter out harsh artificial light, which helps you see better, and they relax your eyes and stop them from straining constantly. Plus, they help combat all those other nasty side effects of staring at screens all day, like eye fatigue and dryness. Your eyes do a lot for you. Return the favor with Gunner's. For more information about Gunner's and to see a video with me wearing my pair of Gunner's, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunner's. That's G-U-N-N-A-R-S. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunner's. And thank you for your support. We're back. Warning, if your pastor or Bible teacher is not rightly handling God's word and they're eisegeting, they're not teaching you the truth. And that false doctrine can lead you away from Christ. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world, and you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate, the other says Join Our Crew, and when you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, moving along... As promised, headline reads, New Mayan calendar contradicts December 21st, 2012, Doomsday. A new Mayan calendar? Now, I've told you that the reason why the end of the world on the Mayan calendar occurs in December of 2012 is because they ran out of room. It's, It's real simple. When you guys... You know, buy your calendars at the calendar store at the mall. You know, they have the calendar kiosks there. You know, you can, you know, seasonal items. You don't buy them throughout the year. But you go and you buy your calendar. You know, it it could be your precious moments calendar. It could be your favorite sports team calendar. It could be, you know, whatever, the you know, it could be your Thomas Kincaid famous paintings from the uh, Artist of Light, you know, calendar. Okay, it always ends December of that year. In fact, I got a calendar on the wall downstairs and it ends in December of this year. And it has nothing to do with that's what we think the end of the world is. It's it's just that well, 
Yeah, you you buy a calendar every year, and yeah, you because you, you know it's, it's kind of be silly if you bought you know, like a five year calendar. You know, it'd be kind of bulky. It would, and especially if you know, like those poor Mayans, they had to make their calendars out of stone. So the headline reads: New Mayan calendar contradicts December twenty first, twenty twelve doomsday. This is by Ivana uh, Kevet. Uh, Kevet uh, I can't pronounce this last name. Kesvik of uh, the Christian Post, and uh, here's what uh, Avana writes. She says, The oldest version of the Mayan calendar reportedly has been discovered deep in the rainforest of Guatemala and extends well beyond December 21st of 2012, a day some observers believe the world would come to an end. According to a new article in Science Journal, archaeologists from Boston University studying the ruins of a 9th century Mayan town in Guatemala discovered a room-like structure with the walls having been used by the ancient civilization to chart astronomical tables that are 500 years older than the charts preserved in the Mayan codices. Uh, On the walls of the 1,200-year-old building, the scientists also discovered a well-preserved wall mural of a Mayan king, the now oldest known Mayan painting. The newly discovered astronomical tables span 7,000 years far beyond the year 2012, putting <laughs> to the uh, putting an end to the claim that the Mayans believed that the world would end on December 21st, 2012. Why would they go into those numbers if the world is going to end this year? Anthony Avini, an expert on Mayan astronomy, told the New York Daily News. So other scientists agree. So there you go. I mean, all right, so... Now we've got more than one Mayan calendar to compare it to. And what we find out from the newer Mayan calendar is that, well, the Mayans didn't believe that the world was going to end in 2012 because we've got a stone calendar that goes 7,000 years beyond the uh, December 21st, 2012 date. Uh, Again, pointing to the fact that Jesus said that no one knows the day or the hour when he's coming back. Not even those rascally Mayans. Um... So yeah, if you if you were banking on the December twenty first, twenty twelve date, bad news. Uh, your your source, the Mayan calendar. Uh, well, we've got a diff- we've got another one, and the, the, they don't jive. And so, chances are looking pretty slim that Jesus is coming back on December twenty first, twenty twelve. Just saying. So there you go. All right, moving along again. of questions that came in on my Facebook wall regarding the lecture, Resistance is Futile, You Will Be Assimilated Into the Community. Camille writes on my Facebook wall, and I'm not sure where Camille lives, I, I, I... Looked at her Facebook wall briefly and wasn't able to determine what part of the world she's from. But uh, Camille writes, she says, just finished listening to your lecture. And here's a question. If what Warren is doing over in Rwanda was focused on making disciples with the same results that he was commenting on, would you be adverse to that? That's question one. Question two, we are... uh, 
We are told where there is no vision, the people perish. How can there be a vision without the muddying of the waters? Um, okay, that's question two. And third, how can we live communally, biblically, taking care of all the needs of the saints without losing sight of the individual? Thanks for your program. It gives me a headache sometimes. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry that it gives you a headache. Um, okay, so Camille, here let's kind of take these apart bit by bit. First question if what Warren is doing over in Rwanda was focused on making disciples with the same results that he was commenting on, would you be adverse to that? Now, let me answer that question by taking you to, well, the audiobook of a book written by Andy Stanley. Okay, Andy Stanley is, well, we've talked about him recently here at Fighting for the Faith because uh, recently he has, well, not... Um, he has not uh, agreed to uh, clarify a statement that he made in a recent sermon where it made it sound like if a homosexual couple wasn't entangled in a divorce at the at that time and then you know that the, apparently the homosexual couple was committing adultery because they weren't divorced legally the question that came up is well if that's the case would then you know if they were officially divorced would it be okay i mean he hasn't answered that question but a andy stanley by the way in the seeker-driven movement, I've made this case before that Andy Stanley is a general in this movement. Um, he's he like Rick Warren would be like Eisenhower, five-star general. You know, Rick Warren is the grand poobah of seeker-drivenism, of purpose-drivenism. Um, Andy Stanley is a one, maybe two-star general. He's pretty high up in this movement. And uh, he is the guy that's uh, written uh, a book called Visioneering and then call another one called Making Vision Stick. Now, as silly as it sounds, I actually am going to be answering your question using Andy Stanley's book called Making Vision Stick. I happen to own the uh, audiobook version of it. That's one of the ways in which I'm able to uh, kind of keep up with all the, a lot of the books that are out there from the Seeker Driven Movement. Uh, they're available at audible.com as unabridged versions. And so when I'm working out or walking the dog, or you know, doing other things. Um, I'm listening to audiobooks so that I can kind of, you know, continue to study and understand what's going on. And so, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play two sections from this book called "Making Vision Stick," and then I'm going to give you a biblical argument. Okay, I'm going to take you to a biblical passage, and we're going to apply what's going on, uh, you know, in the seeker-driven movement to what Andy Stanley says here about making vision stick. You'll see what I'm saying. So uh, he, uh, here we go. In February 2007, Starbucks chairman Howard Schultz sent a memo to his CEO, Jim Donald, that somehow found its way onto the Internet and consequently onto the computer screens of Starbucks fans everywhere. Three people copied me on it in a single day. In the memo, Schultz expresses concern that his company has veered from its original charter. He cites a series of internal decisions that eventually led to a dilution of what customers had come to expect from a visit to Starbucks. By unintentionally altering the Starbucks experience, decision-makers in the company had allowed America's premier coffee-drinking environment to drift from its mission. It was clear from the memo that this was not simply a corporate concern. For Schultz, it was personal. He urges his CEO to create a course that will lead Starbucks back to its original vision. This candid memo underscores the point of this little book and serves as a reminder that vision doesn't stick without constant care and attention. 
One of the greatest challenges of leadership is making vision stick. Vision doesn't have much adhesive. Regardless of how clear I think I've made the vision and in spite of my commitment to repeat it often, someone will inevitably ask a question or offer a suggestion that makes me wonder, where have you been? Have you not been paying attention? When speaking to leaders on the subject of vision, I like to joke that the three primary obstacles to making vision stick are success, failure, and everything in between. There is no season in which a leader can push autopilot and expect the organization to remain vision-driven. It is possible for an organization to increase market share and profit margins while drifting from its original vision. I know from personal experience that it is possible for a church to grow numerically while drifting further and further away from the founding vision that energized the original team of leaders. The gravitational pull is always to the left or right of center. Success lures us into taking our hands off the wheel. Failure causes us to overcorrect. Both success and failure can lead to disaster. The passage of time is hard on vision. Over time, organizations become more complex. Complexity is distracting for leaders. Where there were once two balls to juggle, suddenly there are three, then four, and then forty. All of them are important. Where once there was one good opportunity to pursue, suddenly there are three. And each new opportunity leads to yet another and another. Complexity can kill the original vision. Okay, now let me sum up what's going on here. He's describing vision creep. Okay, now in the business world, this makes sense this way, is that a, a company needs to focus on what it is that it does and to not do things that distract it away from its core competencies. Plain and simple. I mean, this is just business school 101 stuff. When I got my uh, MBA uh, from Pepperdine University, I mean, this is drilled into our heads, you know, about the idea you don't want to, you, you don't want to, have vision creep or scope creep or anything like that. But here's the problem, and that is this, is that Andy Stanley, along with Rick Warren and others, because of what Drucker taught them, is under the misguided uh, perception that each individual seeker-driven pastor has a unique vision that he's received from God and the and it's the job of everybody at that org, in that organization in that church to make that vision come about to become reality and so what he's describing here is what well, we can call it prophetic vision creep and that's not a, a, a misnomer because unlike the business world in the business world you know it's it's somebody's idea to address a particular problem that many businesses are created uh, and formed about and they go about about tackling okay in the church world um if a pastor claims that he's received a vision from god that makes him a prophet okay and you can't challenge the vision because if you challenge the vision you're challenging god himself now, if you don't believe me, let me play a little bit of audio from a vision casting sermon from Eric Dykstra and uh, some of his associate pastors at the Crossing Church 
out there in Elk River, Minnesota. Here's Eric Dykstra. The four of us are going to walk through the 18 major values of the church. We're going to go through them really, really fast. It's going to pop through 18 values of the church. Now, in telling you these values, here's what you got to know. This is the code of the Crossing Church. Stick to the code. We've, yeah, we're going to stick to the code. That's what makes us successful. That, that's what, why God's hand of favor and blessing is on this church, is we stick to the code. And we're going to keep sticking to the code. We've got some beliefs, but we also got a code. We want you to know what the code of the Crossing Church is. There are 18 of them. Yeah. Number two, we are united under the visionary. Now, the visionary here is Eric. The Crossing is built on the vision that God gave Pastor Eric. Yeah. And we will aggressively defend that vision. Now, what does that mean, you aggressively defend that? That means that we do church the way he wants us to do it. And me as a campus pastor, I can't go up to Zimmerman and decide that I'm going to preach on Sunday because that's not the vision that we have for this church that God gave to Eric. Mm -hmm. And we defend that when people go, well, maybe we should do it this way. And we're like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. God gave Eric this vision. We do it this way because we don't want to argue with God, basically. We don't want to be like, you know, Eric's not God. We're not saying Eric's God. He's not God. I'm not God. But he's got a vision from God, and we have decided with our lives that we're going to follow that vision, mm -hmm. and we're going to stick to that. And if we ever just decide that we don't want to be a part of that vision, then we can go find a church and serve somewhere else. And that's, that's okay. We're not telling anybody that they have to unite under this vision that, that Eric got from God. You can do whatever you want. But we think that it's a really cool vision. We're on board with it, and we're going to defend it, and we're going to stick to it. So it's clear by what they're saying here. I mean, there's this understanding that if you challenge the vision, you're challenging God. And that's what Andy Stanley's referring to here, is a seeker-driven pastor receiving a specific vision from God to do church a particular way in a community setting. That's what vision casting is all about. So in this little book called Making Vision Stick, he's reiterating the importance of, well, not getting off of, off of the vision, okay? So this, these are, this is a prophetic vision of sorts, but let's continue with Andy Stanley's book for just a little bit more, and then I'm going to I'm going to switch to chapter seven or eight just to kind of make more of the point that I, but I want you to hear what the, what they teach. Vision. General Motors is a good example. For over 50 years, GM dominated the American car industry with a market share that hovered at 50%. The architect of the vision that rejuvenated GM was Alfred Sloan. His idea back in 1924 was simple. Create five separate brands and price ranges for five distinct types of car buyers. Chevrolet was branded and priced for the first-time car buyer. Pontiac was branded and priced as an upgrade from a Chevrolet. From there, a car buyer could upgrade to an Oldsmobile, then a Buick, and finally, a Cadillac. This approach took several years to catch on. But when it did, GM became king of the American car industry. Along with the growth of GM came unavoidable complexity. In the midst of the complexity, the simplicity and focus of the original vision were lost. The price points among brands began to overlap. Before long, GM brands were competing with each other for the same customers. As brand clarity diminished, so did market share. Now a Chevrolet is anything from a $10,000 Aveo to a $60,000 Corvette, 
A Cadillac can be anything from a sports car to an SUV. As brand distinction diminished, so did market share. GM, the world's number one maker of cars and trucks, lost 20 points of U.S. market share in the last 25 years. It's tough to make vision stick. Time has a way of eroding the adhesive. The forces that slowly eroded the adhesive of Alfred Sloan's vision for GM are working against you and your organization as well. Vision is about what could be and should be. But life is about right this minute. As important as we believe it is for people in our organizations to embrace our pictures of the future, their lives are consumed with the present. Life is about deadlines and decisions and problem-solving, not to mention the kids and the house and the bills and the yard. To get people to sit still long enough to understand your vision is hard enough, but to get them to actually organize their lives around it is supremely difficult. The urgent and legitimate needs of today quickly erase our commitment to the what could be of tomorrow. As the keeper of the vision, there's a lot working against you. Keep in mind, it's a prophetic vision. Working against you. Actually, it's worse than that. Just about everything is working against you. Success, failure, time, life. But if in spite of all that, there's something in you that refuses to give up and settle for the status quo, you may very well be the person God will use to bring about change. Again, notice the emphasis here. The the concern is is that you know you're going to have well the vision start to creep or or to slip. And so what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to fast forward to chapter eight, and listen carefully to what he names this chapter. And of course, I really I do have a point that I'm trying to make here, but I want you to get the concept in your mind that these guys have received a vision from God as to how to do church a particular way, some kind of optimal future that God intends for them to experience and create through this vision that they've and they they've got to organize people and get the motivate people to organize their lives behind making this vision happen, right? Well, let's listen to into chapter 8 regarding vision slippage. Again, I do have a punchline to this, but I want you to get the concept in your head. Chapter 8 Vision Slippage Indicators If you state your vision simply, cast it convincingly, repeat it regularly, celebrate it systematically, and embrace it personally, you are well on your way to making your vision stick. However, it's always wise to be alert to signs that your vision has lost its adhesive. In this section, I'm going to briefly discuss the six organizational warning gauges I keep my eye on. They are new projects, new programs, new products, requests, stories, and complaints. Instead of addressing each of these individually, I've divided them into two groups of three each. Projects, Products, and Programs We've all heard and sounds like a business presentation read stories about businesses that lost their focus, drifted away from their core competencies and wound up in trouble. The same thing happens with churches and parachurch organizations. Vision drift is slow. In many cases, it begins with the introduction of something new to the organization, a new product, the acquisition of a new company or the launch of a new initiative. In my world, it's usually the introduction of a new program, 
leaders must keep their antennae up for new things that have the potential to distract from the main thing. New projects, programs, or even products must be vision-centric. A good wordsmith or someone with a persuasive personality can make any project or program sound like it is within the scope of the vision, and that can be a problem. As a leader, you need to do the due diligence necessary to keep distracting elements out of the organization. At North Point, there are a lot of things we don't do on purpose. Not because they wouldn't be successful, but simply because they don't pass the vision test. Every year or so, someone will approach me with the idea of starting a Christian school. I'm all for Christian education, but I'm not for churches starting schools. The mission and vision of a school is different than that of a local church. At least I believe it is. To leverage the resources of a church to begin a school always interferes with the effectiveness of the church. My standard line is this. Schools are smarter than churches. You never hear about a school starting a church. People who start schools know there is a fundamental difference in focus and vision. We've avoided launching a sports ministry as well. On several occasions, people have approached us who are ready to put up the money to help us build ball fields and gymnasiums. We have turned them down because a sports program is actually counter to our vision. Okay, now I'm going to stop right there. Okay. You kind of get the idea here. This is all about protecting the vision, keeping on topic, okay? And if you were to, you know, to read uh, Andy Stanley's book on visioneering as well as this follow-up book on making vision stick, um then you understand that a vision is supposed to address a particular problem, okay, in the marketplace, address a particular need, and that becomes your core competency, and so you got to stick to, you know, to that core competency and keep on topic keep on mission keep on vision if you would now you're going to note a couple of things here number one the bible doesn't teach anywhere that pastors would receive an individual vision from god that they've got nowhere does the bible talk about vision casting as one of the core parts of the job of a pastor not at all in fact it's not mentioned in any of the pastoral epistles period so we've got a problem here and the, the, let me give you a business uh, analogy and metaphor, if you would, and we're going to basically come back to this idea of if we think of the church as an organization, if you would, okay, who sits at the top? Is it your pastor or is it Jesus Christ? This is an important question. Okay, and the and the, the this needs to be answered because this will tell you who has the authority to set the agenda for any church. Okay, does the pastor have the authority or does Jesus Christ have the authority? And I'm going to go with the idea that Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is not going. He's he hasn't given us any new revelation that somehow we've got to adopt. Uh, you know, vis a vis like the Book of Mormon or something, right? Um, nowhere does the Bible teach vision casting. Nowhere is it mentioned as one of the jobs of a pastor at all. Okay. So therefore I'm going to work from a corporate model, a franchise model and go with this idea. Okay. Having a pastor claim that he has a unique vision for how their particular church is to do church would be the equivalent of a manager at a local McDonald's franchise claiming to have the authority to set vision for their 
uh, mission and vision for their particular McDonald's um, fran- uh, franchise for their particular store in a local area. Okay, so as a result of it, they've discovered that there's there's other needs besides feeding hungry people in their community, and so they have set up there at their local McDonald's, uh, well, the ability for you to purchase well uh, furniture. Um, cleaning supplies. And so you've got all this other stuff that McDonald's is doing other than making, you know, Big Macs and filet of fish and French fries, right? And, uh, and, you know, and so this manager claims that, listen, you don't understand our local community. I mean, we, we've got a lot of people who need to be able to buy furniture and that's a need that's not being met. And so we've, we've got, we've got McSofas. We've got McCouches. We've got McLamps. We've got Mick, you know, Mick beds and and other things like that, and uh, and and Mick knickknacks that you know that we've we've added into our local vision. Okay, if a local manager or owner operator of a local McDonald's franchise did something like that, he would be getting a phone call and a visit from somebody from headquarters, basically saying, "Excuse me." But you, that's like way above your pay grade. It's In fact, it's like not even in your job description at all for you to set vision and mission for McDonald's, whether it's in your local community or not, okay? That's something that is reserved for headquarters, okay? So nowhere in the Bible does it teach that a pastor has the authority to cast vision, Nowhere. It's not granted to him. In fact, it's not found in his job description either. If you're not sure what the job of a pastor is, read the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. You will find nothing about, well, casting vision and the importance of making vision stick. Okay? And what you find in these seeker-driven churches, they claim to have received a direct vision from God that, to, that basically becomes the... Well, the justification for all the things that they're doing there, um, for doing church for the unchurched and all the nonsense that they're engaging in. Okay. But I'm going to basically say the positive argument is this. There's only one human being, and I'll use that uh, term there, who has the authority to set vision for the church, including all local franchises. Okay, all local congregations, um, and headquarters is 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 literally the throne room of God, Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of the Father, the God Man Himself. He's the only human being who has the authority to set vision for the church, because the church does address a particular problem. Okay, the church has a mission. The church has a vision. And what I would like to do right now is to read to you the relevant passages that discuss this, okay? Jesus, in Luke chapter 24, says this. Um, it, it begins at um, verse 46. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Okay, what's the problem out in the marketplace that the church is addressing? Here's the problem. 
each and every human being is born dead in trespasses and sins and is under the wrath of God as a result of their rebellion against God. Okay? That's the problem. In other words, they're facing an eternity in the lake of fire. Now, Jesus himself has taken uh, taken it upon himself to fix the problem. What was his solution? He came to earth incarnate of the Holy Spirit uh, of the Virgin Mary, by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, became man, lived a sinless life under the Mosaic law, and was crucified for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and raised again on the third day in accordance with the scripture. That's the solution. Jesus accomplished that for us so that anybody who believes in him for the forgiveness of their sins is declared righteous before God and will not spend eternity in hell, but spend eternity with Christ in the kingdom of God forever. Okay, It's the most amazing good news ever. So the job of the church is proclamation. The job of the church, the vision that Jesus has given the church, is that the the church is to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. That would include 21st century United States, 21st century Australia, 21st century Europe, wherever, okay? All nations. This There's no deviation allowed here. That's the, vi- the vision that Jesus has given. You, I would cross-reference that with the Great Commission, where Jesus says in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So the idea here is is that you make disciples, you baptize, you proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and you teach the full counsel of the Word of God. This is the definitive Mission, vision statement given to the church by the only human being, the God-man Jesus Christ, who has the authority to set the mission and vision for the church, period, end of discussion. Okay. Now, I would cross-reference that also then with uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 5, adding on to this, basically says this, okay, uh, verse 17, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The church has been given the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, and God is making his appeal through us, so we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Plain and simple, okay? This is the mission and vision that Christ has given to the church and all congregations who are truly disciples of Jesus Christ, that are filled with disciples of Jesus Christ, this mission and vision is to be cast, recast, reiterated, focused on, and any deviation from this using the seeker-driven concept is mission and vision creep. 
You get what I'm saying? These guys are off mission. They are off vision. They are, they've lost sight of the fact that Jesus has already set the vision for the church and it doesn't get to change, period. And so the question, now I'm going to circle back. The original question that was asked on my Facebook wall was if what Warren is doing over in Rwanda was focused on making disciples with the same results that he was commenting on, would you be adverse to that? Well, having looked at the passages where Jesus, who is the only person, Rick Warren, Andy Stanley, Perry Noble, Stephen Furtick, Eric Dykstra, none of those guys have the authority to cast vision in the church. None of them do. Only Jesus has that authority. It is far above their pay grade. They are McDonald's managers in a local setting, and they don't get to set vision for the corporation. Only Jesus does, and he's already said it, and and that vision that he's given is still in effect today. These guys are off topic. Listen again now to what Rick Warren said. Hi, everybody, and welcome to News and Views for March 27, 2012. I am so glad to be back home. You know, I've been overseas. Uh, uh, We have been in Rwanda for uh, about nine days. And I want to tell you, I'm more excited about uh, Purpose Driven and the Peace Plan than I've ever been because I saw an amazing result. And I'm watching an entire nation being transformed because of you, Saddleback Church. Because of your commitment to the peace plan, amazing things are happening in Rwanda. Is the peace plan part of the Great Commission? Not even close. Does it does it fall under the Ministry of Reconciliation? No, it doesn't. Does it have to do with proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name? Well, if it does, he doesn't mention it. Wanda, did you know that in the last five years, we've been there now about eight years. In the last five years, one million people are no longer in poverty. That's 10% of the nation. Well, that's great, but that's not the mission and vision that Jesus has given for the church. Uh, that's in the nation of Rwanda. 10 million people. One million people have come out of poverty since the peace plan started there. The president was flat out overjoyed. I spent two days with the president's advisory council, which I serve on. I spoke to a national prayer breakfast to about 400 of the leading government leaders. There was great enthusiasm. In fact, they've asked me to train their leadership. I had private meetings with the uh, the president of the central bank, the governor of the central bank, and the prime minister, of course, with the president. Uh, and these men have asked me to do leadership training. Uh, leadership training? What does that have to do with what Jesus has given for the vision for the church? Uh, for that nation. With- Notice he's cast a competing vision. The government, because they've seen what's happening. He's organizing Christ's resources to accomplish a different vision than the one that Jesus cast. Happened with our pastors. You know, we began training pastors in Rwanda a number of years ago. That's the first step. We start with equip servant leaders and and uh, and uh, promote reconciliation, the P and the E of peace. And we now have over 2,300 pastors in this small country of Rwanda who've gone through three solid years of training. Training to do what? Rightly handle God's word? And that is an amazing effect. I did two graduations, one in the south, one in the north, for about 90 in the south and about 80 in the north of these pastors who had gone through, finished three years of training. And these 
uh, people are so excited about, uh, you know, building the class system. Uh, so these pastors that you've trained are excited about building the class system in Rwanda. Again, Rick Warren has a competing vision than the, than the, than the vision that Jesus cast. Okay? Jesus made it clear. We have the ministry of reconciliation. We're to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus' name, make disciples, baptize, and teach the full counsel of the word of God. But he's got pastors who've been trained for three years that are excited to go to work on building the class system in Rwanda about doing the peace plan and they are reaching out in their community and they are changing that nation it w yeah but they are not doing what jesus told the church to do we're watching it literally change before our eyes we also over there graduated about three thousand of our health care workers which you know we've been doing this project in karanji where we took members of churches trained them, they trained others, they trained others. We now in just two years have over 3,000 of these trained. Each of these community peace servants visits seven families a week. And they go out and they visit and they do health care and they take care. This is in a, in a region that had uh, very little uh, medical uh, infrastructure, uh, you know, only a few doctors and nurses and stuff like that. And we're going into villages that have never had a doctor. And the church is providing health care because of the peace plan. The church is providing health care. This is the equivalent of McDonald's offering furniture for sale. It's off mission. And the president of Rwanda asked me to personally thank those of you. Over a thousand Saddleback members have gone to Rwanda. Can you imagine that? Over a thousand of you have served in Rwanda, and I see your handprints and, and impact literally everywhere in the business sector, in the farming sector, in the health sector, in the government sector, and of course, in the church, because everything we do is in and through the church. We uh, saw a number of new projects that we're starting, including uh, uh, training, setting up preschools in, uh, in uh, uh, churches, a uh, 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 project on helping people learn to do savings together. You know, 90 plus percent of Rwandans have never had a bank account. And we're helping them set up savings accounts between each other in the church where they pool their money and they help each other out and they're serving each other. And the return on the investment is about 50% to these people helping themselves and helping each other. Okay. So, I mean, that kind of gives you the idea. Let me again play for you uh, the opening of chapter eight on making vision stick. Here is Andy Stanley. Well, this is what he wrote, but he's not reading it. But Chapter eight. Vision Slippage Indicators If you state your vision simply, cast it convincingly, repeat it regularly, celebrate it systematically, and embrace it personally, you are well on your way to making your vision stick. However, it's always wise to be alert to signs that your vision has lost its adhesive. In this section, I'm going to briefly discuss the six organizational warning gauges I keep my eye on. They are new projects, new programs, new products, requests, stories, and complaints. Instead of addressing each of these individually, I've divided them into two groups of three each. Projects, Products, and Programs We've all heard and read stories about businesses that lost their focus, drifted away from their core competencies, and wound up in trouble. 
the same thing happens with churches and parachurch organizations. Vision drift is slow. In many cases, it begins with the introduction of something new to the organization, a new product, the acquisition of a new company. Nation building, uh, <laughs> working on the class system, transforming a nation. I think Rick Warren is the poster boy for vision slippage because he's not in line with the vision that Jesus cast for the church. And that vision doesn't get to change, period. That's what's going on there. So circling back now, okay, remember Camille asked the question. If what Warren was doing over in Rwanda was focused on making disciples with the same results that he was commenting on, would you be adverse to that? Um, I don't think it's possible for Warren to be in line with the vision that Jesus cast for the church, the mission that Jesus gave to the church, and for him to be involved in all of that other stuff. In fact, he is taking Jesus' resources and applying them to his own vision rather than the vision that Jesus has set for the church, the mission that Jesus has set for the church. And that's the problem. I don't see how you can do it. Like I said, Rick Warren is the poster boy for vision slippage. He's a pastor, and he's acting like a nation builder, and there's a difference. And Jesus hasn't called pastors to be nation builders. He's called them to preach the word, to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus' name, to all nations, including Rwanda, and Rick Warren has found something more important to do. Uh, granted, these are fine, good works in the, wor in the realm of the civic Okay, but this is not the church's core competency. The message that we've been given addresses the real problem that every human faces regarding his bad relationship with God that he's born into and that Jesus is solved by his death and resurrection. What Rick Warren is doing is misappropriating Jesus's resources to a competing vision that he has no right to cast. Okay, that's the problem. Now, the second question on the uh, on the table was there regarding where, where we are told where there is no vision, the people perish. Actually, let's take a look at that in context. That's actually taken from uh, one of the Proverbs. I think it's Proverbs 29. Um, yeah, let me find it real quick. Right, it's uh, Proverbs 29, verse 18. Let me read it from a good translation. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law, the Torah. What's referred to there, it's not that without prophetic vision, like vision casting people perish. Prophetic vision, where do we find prophetic vision today? Answer in the written word of God. So, and that's why it says, but blessed is he who keeps the law, the Torah. So the, the what's being referred to in Proverbs 29, 18 is not a direct revelation from God uh, given to a vision casting pastor. What's being referred to there is without the word of God, without the prophetic vision found in the written word of God, people perish and cast off restraint. That's what's being referred to. Last question that you asked uh, there had to do with, uh, let me read it here. So how do we live communally, biblically, taking care of all of the needs of the saints without losing sight of the individual? It's real simple, uh, Camille. And that is, is that the word of God doesn't put the concept of the individual in the community intention. Okay, we it's it's that we're both here and now in time and space. So Jesus knows your name. 
You have a name, and Jesus knows exactly who you are. You are an individual whom Christ died for, and you are part of the body of Christ. It's both at the same time. It's not that they're intention. That's just our existence. So the idea is, is that we understand that because each individual human being was created in the image of God and that Christ died for each individual human being, they have inherent worth that comes from God. That, and so the idea then, go back to the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder, okay? So, and thou shalt not steal. God wants you to recognize that you are not to destroy an individual or steal from him whom God has created. So the idea is, is that we, we understand that both concepts are equally valid. So it's perfectly legitimate to say Jesus loves me. And it's also perfectly legitimate to say Jesus loves us. Christ died for the church as well as Christ died for me. Both are true. And it's not that they're intention. That's just the way it is. So the idea here is, is that I think the, the guys in the, at the time of the enlightenment got it right when they said, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, including the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of, of happiness. And what I mean by that is this, is that you look at the Ten Commandments, apply it to individuals, and it's very clear that I as an individual have a right given to me from God that you shall not murder me. And if you murder me, you will suffer the consequences of God, for thus God himself says vengeance is mine, Right? So that's the idea. You don't put them. You don't put them in tension. You know, it, you know, here in the here and now, it's both. It's not an either or. So love and serve your neighbor, um, and through the work that you've been given, love and serve your neighbor. And what's what are these good works? If you're a mom, you take care of your 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 kids. Father, you love and take care of your wife and your children. Uh, you you're an employee. You you do a good job at work. That's how we love and serve our neighbor. You know, individually as well as in the community in the in the vocation that God has given us. Not in making a seeker-driven vision come to, in, uh, into reality. Those visions are not given from God to seeker-driven pastors. They are competing visions to the vision that Christ has cast for the church that is once for all the thing that we're to be about the business of doing in the church. And these guys have a competing vision, and they're misappropriating Christ's resources, and they're doing so to their own peril and the peril of those people who are under them. Okay. We are up on our second break. I ran a little bit long in that uh, segment. So if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. <laughs> Wipe out. 
The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. You spend some serious time staring at a digital screen, probably around eight hours a day. There's work, video games, surfing the web, and every other function of life on all our devices. Hey, we live in an age where everything is digital. It's just par for the course, right? But have you ever thought about the impact all that has on your eyes? All that screen time is going to affect your vision. Maybe now, maybe later, but it's gonna happen. We're talking everything from eye fatigue and headaches to eyes that are so dry and irritated, they could make even the techiest dude alive want to go analog. It's pretty hard to do the stuff you love if your eyes are feeling exhausted or burnt out. But it's not like less time in front of a screen is an option these days. So what do you do? It's like you need some crazy awesome invention that can help your eyes stay fresh and protect them so that you can get the most out of your digital consumption. Introducing Gunner Optics. Gunners are these super sweet computer glasses that make it easier and more comfortable to enjoy all your digital activities. There's seriously some NASA grade stuff going on here, but basically they have this uber smart lens technology that improves your visual experience, protects your vision, and helps prevent wear and tear on your eyes. Gunner's yellow lenses filter out harsh artificial light, which helps you see better, and they relax your eyes and stop them from straining constantly. Plus, they help combat all those other nasty side effects of staring at screens all day, like eye fatigue and dryness. Your eyes do a lot for you. Return the favor with Gunner's. For more information about Gunner's and to see a video with me wearing my pair of Gunner's, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunner's. That's G-U-N-N-A-R-S. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunner's. And thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. We're well into hour number two, sermon review time. I've got a um, Ed Young animal sermon. Yeah, hang on, we'll do this right.
The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's <clears throat> lecture uh, comes to us via fellowship in Dallas, Texas. Leader Ed Young presiding. This is part five of their wild uh, series that they did there at um, Fellowship in Texas. I mean, Dallas. And supposedly this is all about being an eagle. Just ask yourself this question. We'll answer it along the way. Is this a right handling of God's word? Or is Ed Young at this point making a metaphor into the meat of his lecture when he should be preaching the word of God? Yeah, it's, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just that bad. But, you know, he makes an animal of himself for sure during the sermon. Uh, that's all I'm going to say. Let's, without any further ado, here's Ed Young and Wild Part 5. I want to welcome everybody here at Fellowship Church. We're one church in many different locations. I want to say hi to our friends in Miami, down in South Florida. Also, downtown Dallas. Plano, Fort Worth, all of our online folks. How are you guys doing? We've been seen in over 40 countries online. So right now, we're being viewed by a lot of different people in a lot of different places. Now, our online campus does not give you an excuse to miss. It means if you're traveling, you can participate online. Well, today we're in our series called Wild. The Bible talks a lot about wild stuff. God is our creative creator, and he's created creatures. He talks about creatures in scripture as illustrations, as metaphors that we can learn from. Well, today we're going to look at one of the most majestic creatures on the planet. Let's bring out the bald eagle. We have a female bald eagle. Handle they got the band playing Fly Like an Eagle. So this reminds me of a variety show. I mean, oh, man. We're going to look at one of the most majestic creatures on the planet let's bring out the bald eagle we have a female bald eagle handled by kelly rayner and this is a wild bird that will be returned to the wild kingdom very very shortly is she gorgeous or what unbelievable Eagles are just just crazy. They really, really are. They build nests sometimes that weigh over a ton. They construct these nests with sharp sticks, and then they line the nests with materials that are soft, like their feathers or moss, grass. And then when the eaglets are hatched, as they mature, they take away the, the soft materials so the nest actually makes them uncomfortable uncomfortable enough to fly well that's great i mean we're exegeting you know the properties of an eagle um wow um can we look at the bible um ed i mean th this is a fine variety television show i'm sure i i'm sure your ratings are really high but i have no idea what this has to do with your job to do the vision that Jesus cast, that you're to preach the word, the full counsel of the word of God, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name. You know, that kind of stuff. Great eyesight. They can see a 12-inch fish leaping in a lake five miles away. They have eight times more visual 
cells per cubic centimeter in their eyes than we do in ours. An eagle is a beautiful bird, a great bird. That's why God compares you and me to an eagle. Isn't that cool? God says in no uncertain terms, we're eagles. We can become eagles. We're eagles. God says in no uncertain terms, you can become an eagle. Really? Um, can you show me that in context from a, a biblical passage? Time is slipping into the future. Steve Miller- As he's quoting the lyrics from the Fly Like an Eagle song. Miller was right. We have an opportunity to fly like an eagle. And today, we're going to learn how to fly. We're going to learn how to fly in our relationships. We're going to learn how to fly in our marriage. We're going to learn how to fly in our career. We're going to learn how to fly in our finances because the Bible has... Now notice all of the themes. It it has to do with everything that's imminent, nothing transcendent. We're going to fly in our marriage, our finances, our career, you know, whatever. We're, We're going to experience life change. Everything has to do with the here and the now, but he's not teaching sound biblical doctrine. You'll see it as we go. Has a lot to say about soaring and flying like an eagle. I'm sure the Bible does. Please show me. Kelly, thank you so much for bringing the eagle to us. Now, she's going to go backstage, and we're going to have the first ever eagle cam. That's right, an eagle cam. So while I'm talking, you're going to see this eagle. And the Seagulls told me already she really enjoys Fellowship Church a lot. She said that, so I'm very, very excited about it. That's right, we're all eagles. So turn to your neighbor and say, you're an eagle. Notice we're not in a biblical text at this point. How much do you want to bet that the uh, the verse he finds that, that references us being somehow likened to an eagle is taken out of context? That's right, an eagle. Eagles soar. They don't just fly. Yeah, they They do some fluttering and some flapping. They use, though, the winds and the air to soar. Eagles have been seen flying at 10,000 feet. When a storm is coming their way, they fly to a very high spot. Use the winds to propel them above the storm. They have a unique perspective. They don't see just a little postage stamp. No, no, they see the whole scene, the whole picture. That's the kind of vision that God wants us to have. Oh, right, because, you know, God somewhere says in the Bible, which he hasn't pointed out yet, that we're we're like eagles. That that means that God wants us to soar above and have the vision of an eagle. Mm Mm-hmm, I'm not buying it. Because we are eagles. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31 the prophet tells us, but okay, those I, who... Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. That should be a tip-off. And what I mean by that is, is that how much do you want to bet that as soon as we put this in context, that that's not what it's teaching? No, no, no Notice, we're, we've already gotten some teaching here, okay? Eagles fly above the storm. They have vision. They can see the, They can see things really well, and this is what God wants us to do. How much do you want to bet Isaiah 40 verse 31 doesn't say that? We're going to read this in, in context here in a minute, but let's let him lay out his case for a minute or two. To wait upon God, get fresh strength, 
They spread their wings and soar like eagles. They run and don't get tired. They walk and don't lag behind. Now that is something else. That's a stunning verse from Scripture. But, yeah, but notice that um, Isaiah 40, verse 31, begins with the word, but. That's a conjunction. Okay? Conjunctions connect words and phrases and clauses together to complete an entire thought. So if you're going to begin Isaiah 40, verse 31, but they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Wait a second, there's a but there. What's the rest of this passage teaching? What is this passage about? Well, let's take a look. And we're going to start at verse 1. Because there's something really going on in the book of Isaiah that we need to know but he's not teaching it. I mean, it's as if, you know, he's sitting at his computer trying to figure out how to come up with a relevant life change imminent sermon that avoids uh, transcendent doctrines and things like that. And so he types into his computer eagle and he and and up comes this verse. Oh, okay. Look at that. It says they shall mount up with wings like eagles. Ah ha 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 ha. ha. Now notice it doesn't say they shall be eagles. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. So the Bible doesn't say that we're eagles or that you know that we can become eagles. He said the Bible is full of all these passages that said that we're just like eagles. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hands double for all of her sins. Ah, I see. Yeah, well, if you're familiar with the history of Israel, Israel, the people of Israel, had this really bad habit. And that is is that they would go whoring after other gods. That's what the Bible calls it. And you're thinking, man, that's some strong language, Chris. Yes, it is, because that's how the Bible describes it. They would go whoring after other gods. They were guilty of idolatry in the extreme, and God would punish them and judge them for their sins. The ten tribes of the northern kingdom, they were wiped off the face of the map for their whoring idolatry. Okay, And so here, Isaiah 40, verse 1, there's a transition from, some of the, other, from the other portion of Isaiah here, where God says to Isaiah, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Yet, by the way, this Isaiah 40, verse 3, is a prophecy regarding John the Baptist. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain shall be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So notice the gospel tie-ins here. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord's, of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. 
okay, talking about the fleetingness of life, of our mortal existence. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of the good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust of the, of the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are as accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness shall you compare with him? An idol? <laughs> a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Notice it says the circle of the earth. The Bible doesn't teach the, that the earth was flat. It teaches that the earth is round, that it's a circle. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Now, by the way, I'm not done here, but I want to point this out. There's a reason why I chose to read the whole chapter. Because this chapter of Isaiah is not about me being like an eagle. This isn't about us being eagles and having eagle vision. This passage is about God. It's about Yahweh, the one true God. And it's making all of these points to point us to his majesty, his might, his power, his mercy, his forgiveness, and his pardon. Right? To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? 
The Lord is everlasting. He is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Notice it says, they who wait for the Lord, wait upon the Lord. That's the key. He's not just saying, oh, you're just like an eagle and you need to be, you need to ascribe to yourself and embrace the attributes of an eagle. Yeah, uh, already Ed Young's sermon is for the birds because he's wrongly handling the biblical text. But those who wait upon God, see the word wait, it means to expect. It means to take something weak and wrap it around something strong. Think about your faith in mind. Jesus said if you have the faith of a mustard seed, that's enough faith to enter into a personal relationship with him. So often, our faith seems like a thread. Yet the Bible says we can wrap our thread around God's cable. The Bible says also that a cord of three strands is not easily broken. That is what is there for us as we engage the eagle in us that only comes from God himself. Those who wait upon God. The text doesn't say there's an eagle in us. Get fresh strength. This word fresh. If anything, the strength is from outside of us. God gives it to us means to exchange. Think again about the eagle. The eagle molts. It exchanges old feathers for new feathers. And the new feathers are for a new season. When we wait upon God, when we get fresh strength, we have an exchange taking place. We have new feathers for a new season. God is preparing you right now for a new season. A new season in every slice of your life. The text doesn't say that. Notice how he's scratching, itching ears here. You're an eagle. You're an eagle. No, it says that the Lord gives us strength, and it's a metaphor. You can soar. I can soar. They spread their wings and soar. They run and don't get tired. They walk and don't lag behind. You realize an eagle, the older he gets, becomes stronger and stronger and stronger and that's the way it is as we walk with God we can get stronger and stronger what am I saying I'm saying simply this the eagle is all about vision vision means to make out what most people miss so the eagle is all about vision and apparently this is the secret that God had in the text you, you have to figure out what an eagle is all about so that you can see it so an eagle's all about vision eagles make out what most birds miss a vulture is a bird ah! that pretty much eats roadkill. They feed on dead stuff, dying stuff. And where does this text talk about vultures? You're isogeting vultures into this metaphor that you took out of context. Let's be honest. We live in a culture of the vulture. Ah! Are you a vulture? Ah! Or an eagle? An eagle, on the other hand, 
source. An eagle sees the whole picture. And a turkey twists God's word and says things that it doesn't say. The whole situation. An eagle has this perspective like no other bird. I don't know about you, but sometimes in life I meet people, I say, oh, I'm talking to an eagle. I am talking to an eagle. Never once have I sat down and tried to figure out what kind of animal I'm talking to. I'm talking to an eagle. I'm talking to a turkey. I'm actually listening to one right now. After a while, though, I'm like, I'm talking to a vulture. This vulture is all about roadkill. This vulture is all about feeding on dead things. The eye of an eagle is formulated to look forward. God wants you and me to look forward. Obviously, the eagle can see a little bit in the rearview mirror. So God wants us to look forward, okay? Because, you know, that's what apparently Isaiah 40, 31 is all about. You need to have vision and look forward and not be into roadkill, but living things. We have to remember the things that God has done. So often... We forget what we should remember and remember what we should forget. Yeah, like you've forgotten that your job's to preach the word, all of it, and you're not doing that. However, as we walk with God, it's all about soaring, it's all about flying, it's all about moving. Yet somewhere along life's journey, the culture of the vulture clips our wings. They, they, they tie our talons. They cage us and ground us. And instead of soaring, we're standing. It's oh no, those pesky vultures. They, I had no idea that vultures had the ability to make an eagle walk. I had no idea. Instead of really flying, we just spend our lives fluttering. Time is slipping into the future. And it's time that we fly like eagles. Are you an eagle? Or are you a vulture? The Bible gives us the great account of some people who were fighting this fight. The eagles against the vultures and the vultures. Really? The Bible talks about the eagles versus the vultures? I had no idea. I bet you anything if we go to that passage and look at it in context, it doesn't mention vultures or eagles. Against the eagles. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 13. Let me set the stage for you. In the development of God's people, we understand that God's people, the Israelites, were in Egyptian slavery. Okay, by the way, if you go to Numbers 13, this is the story of the 12 spies that were sent to spy out the land of Canaan. No mention of vultures or eagles in the entire chapter. Yeah, read it. For hundreds of years. God picked a leader, Moses, to free them up out of Egyptian slavery. When God has a plan... He picks a man or a woman, always. It's singular. He deposits his vision on someone. Then that vision is spread. Mo Notice, this is the seeker-driven heresy of vision casting. God picks a singular leader and then casts his vision onto that leader. And that leader has to, you know, that I mean, that's a synopsis of the seeker-driven vision casting heresy. This is not taught in the Bible. Moses led the children of Israel out of Egyptian slavery. God did all of this supernatural stuff, parted waters, 
fed them from heaven. It was just, 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 just crazy what God did. Amazing stuff. And the people saw it. The people saw life change. And it was, it was just a, a, a great, great thing. God- and the people saw life change. R- really? Where, what part of the Exodus story does the life change take place? Was that the part where the people of Israel who grumbled against God and didn't believe died in the desert, never making it to the promised land because of their unbelief? Yeah, that was life change, all right. They died. No, see, you're hearing all of the seeker-driven themes being played out in this sermon, and yet none of this is taught in Scripture. He's just eisegeting it, reading it into these texts. God told them about attractive land, the promised land. And the Bible calls this the land flowing with milk and honey. God said, the land is yours. Do you get it? God said, read my lips. The land is yours. It's yours. You thought we're going to have to claim the land. God always gives us. I'm talking about eagles, a tract of land, a tract to attack. He always gives us. Really, where in the Bible does it, says, does it say that God gives eagles a tract of land, huh? Where does it say that? You've taken one verse that mentions eagles as a metaphor in passing, half of a, of a thought, it's not even a full sentence, out of context, and now you're pouring all this stuff into it. Where in the Bible does it say that God wants to give eagles a tract of land? Land to claim, a tract to attack. Living for the Lord is adventuresome. It's exciting. We step out. We claim what God has given us. So one would think God's people would have gone, oh, man, this is absolutely off the chain. All we got to do is claim the land. It's the land of milk and honey. It's a track to attack. Yeah, it's inhabited by some, some, some pretty big people, but God has given it to us. We're going to have to fight. It's our land. We can do it. I mean, look what God has done. Look at the future. You would think, I mean, God's people, eagles, right? They're soaring. They have their perspective. You would think everything would happen great. Well, God says, Moses, I'll tell you what I want you to do. I want you to pick 12 heavy hitters from all the tribes, and I want these guys to do some recon on the land that I've given you. So sure enough, these 12 spies, they're called in the book of Numbers chapter 13, they went out and checked out the land. They were there for 40 days. They were turned back. And you know, because at that point, one would have thought that the entire nation of Israel were a bunch of eagles. One, one, one would think that everybody would be like chest bumping and high-fiving them as the 12 spies came back to report on the land that God had given them, on the track that God wanted them to attack. I'm sure the band was like, bum, 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 the spies are back, bum, bum, the spies are back, bum, bum, that ain't no jack, bum, bum, yeah, 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 yeah. You know they were doing that. There's an applause line making a complete fool of himself and wrongly handling God's word to boot. So they came back, and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to hear from some eagles. These people are visionary. These people make out what others miss. Numbers chapter 13, verse 27. They, let me stop. They, say they with me. Who was they in your life? Who were they? Who were they? They. They said, 
They feel they have been coming to me. They. Here's how to mess somebody up. Just say, who are they? Uh, that that they? Uh, them. Them, yeah. Those. Those? Whose? I mean, seriously, this is just such a miserable handling of the text. Can you, I mean, seriously, could he try harder at the ice of Jesus? I don't think so. And they is usually one or two negative people. Don't waste your time chasing down the they. Are you hanging out with the right they, the eagles, who were tough, honest, encouraging, and yielded to God? Or are you hanging out with the wrong they, the vultures they they gave moses this account we went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey here's its fruits they were showing pomegranates grapes whatever people were cheering chest bumping high-fiving the band was playing but look at verse 28 but whenever someone says but everything else they've said before the but really does it matter but i love you but i'm with you coach but i love the team but the school is awesome but this church is great but 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 Ah! you're dealing with a vulture so who knew numbers 13 was all about teaching you how to identify vultures people without vision but the people who live there are powerful. Well, I mean, great. God said, the land is ours. We're going to have to open up a can and clear it out. So now you're talking about the people of powerful. Tell me something we don't know. Ten of the 12 spies, not all 12, 10 of the 12 spies become vultures. Again, have you ever met somebody? You're going, oh, they're an eagle. They're soaring. But as you get to know them, you're like, wow. Always talking about but. And this is a sign. If you know someone in your life is always getting blah, 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 but. Blah, 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 but. Blah, 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 but. Blah, 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 however. Blah, 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 moreover. Blah, 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 but, but. It could be that you are dealing with a ah, vulture. But I love this. I mean, is this Christian doctrine at all? Is this biblical doctrine? Not at all. I mean, this isn't teaching love towards neighbor. This is basically saying, oh, I got to disassociate with somebody if I deem them to be, well, a vulture. Ten of the twelve spies were going negative. They were vultures. But what happened? Caleb and Joshua, two of the twelve spies, two of the eagles. How do you know if you're dealing with an eagle? When the rogue winds hit, when the storms strike, they fly to a high place to get God's perspective, and they use the wind to fly over the vultures, and they're like... There's an applause line. This isn't a biblical teaching, by the way. What are you guys smoking and toking? What? 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 Check him out. Verse 30, Caleb interrupted. How do you know if you're an eagle? When vultures start going negative when vultures start texting or twittering or littering or blogging or bragging you oh yeah yeah i'm a vulture yeah see this is all about teaching us about vultures and i would be a vulture because you know i blog and you know i take the time to 
be a Berean to check to see if what he's saying really squares with what God's Word says. Numbers chapter 13, verse 17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land that they dwell in is a good is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are in camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage. Bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rohab near Lahohamath, and they went up into the Negeb and came to Hebron. Ahimon, Sheshai, Talmai, and the descendants of Anak were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt, and they came to the valley of Eskol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between the two of them, and they also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eskol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. And the end of 40 days, at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran and at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And this is the fruit. However, the people who dwell in that land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. And besides, We saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land, and they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the son of Anak, who comes from the Nephilim. And we seemed ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. You see what's going on here? Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into all this land to fall by the sword? What's the problem? Unbelief. They had seen all these miracles. Yahweh, our one true God and Lord, perform in freeing them from slavery from Egypt, and yet they do not believe. They do not believe. They think God has it out for them, and yet God has done nothing but prove to them over and over again through his deeds that he loves them and has their best in mind. He's freed them from slavery, miraculously drowned the armies of Pharaoh in the Red Sea, and here they are, fearful and terrified and distrusting the Lord. This isn't just any old negativity. This is unbelief. 
Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not have been better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly and the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is exceedingly, it is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done for them, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a great a, a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from, the, from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of the land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he has killed them in the, in the wilderness. And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love just as you have forgiven this people from egypt until now then the lord said i have pardoned according to your word but truly as i live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the lord none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that i did in egypt and in the wilderness have yet and have yet put me to the test these ten times, have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they have grumbled against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land. 
where I swore that I would make you dwell, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. It's funny that Ed Young isn't preaching that. In fact, it's tragic, because that's really the point of this text, is not fearing, not trusting, not loving, not obeying God, not believing in Him, but thinking He has your worst in mind. This isn't about negativity. It's about lack of faith. We continue. You interrupt. Equals say, hey, <laughs> that's, that's fine, but here is what God said. Here is what I know. Here is where I'm flying. So, so, so Joshua and Caleb interrupted they call for silence. Up, up. And they said, let's go and take the land. We can do it. See, Nike ripped off that last statement from God. If God wanted to, he could file a multi-billion dollar lawsuit against Nike. We can do it. God's given it to us. I'm an eagle. We're eagles. We have this perspective. I mean, we can do it. Yet the culture of the vulture is so powerful, so sinister, so violent, so passive aggressive. Verse 31, we can't attack those people. How do you know if you're talking to a vulture? But. How do you know if you're talking to a vulture? We can't. 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 We can't. No, we just can't. The sad thing is, is that in the story, it's about those who didn't have faith. Can't. We just can't. We just, we just can't. We can't do that. We can't try that. We can't go there. We can't travel there. We can't build that. We can't start that church. We can't start that company. We can't. We can't tithe. We can't get involved. We can't. We can't. Ah! We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. Look at verse 32. They spread among the Israelites a bad report. You know what I love about our church? Vultures don't last very long at fellowship. Vultures don't last very long at fellowship because there's nothing dead to eat. You know, if you were to use Numbers 13 correctly, it makes me, you know, those who don't really trust and believe God. It, I would be convinced that using the metaphor that while well, fellowship would be full of vultures because they don't hear his word. They haven't been brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And they're, this isn't a passage about negativity. I mean, if you were to really correctly use the metaphor here, the eagles are the true believers, those who have faith in God. The vultures are the unbelievers. And based upon the preaching that I'm hearing, this sermon's powerless to bring anybody to repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. In fact, this is a different gospel altogether. Everything is living. The 
This is the body of Christ, the living, breathing body of Christ full of eagles. Thank you, eagles, for being eagles. Thank you, eagles, for soaring. Thank you, eagles, for flying. Thank you, eagles, for seeing only as God sees. Thank you, eagles, for making out what others miss. You know, I read this too about vultures. I couldn't believe it. I said it in, in our earlier services, and people thought I was just joking. This is a fact. Vultures, when they're, when they're roosting or resting in trees, when there's more than one, they're called a committee of vultures. How do you know? How do you know if you're talking to a vulture? Let's form a committee. Because usually the majority is wrong. Usually the majority is wrong. Usually the majority is wrong. But see, it sounds so sexy, so American, so cool, so politically correct. It's like, oh, the majority is right. The majority is usually wrong. Slap against democracy. It's an interesting slap. Leaders take people not where they want to go, where they need to go. And as an eagle, you'll feel lonely. As an eagle, you'd be like, man, I'm the only one up here. As an eagle, I'm the only Christian on my team, the only Christian at school, the only Christian in my fraternity, the only Christian in my sorority. You're an eagle. I'm the only Christian. I'm the only one. I'm slowly up here. Sometimes it is. But the Bible promises me our strength is found in God. We can take our thread, wrap it around his cable, our new feathers, are for new seasons and we'll fly like we've never seen and have victory and a perspective like no one can have but the eagle. They spread among the Israelites a bad report. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. If you're not leading, you're not hurting. If you're not hurting, you're not leading. Leading is not easy. Leadership. And speaking of majority, we've only done... He's not talking about being a minister. He's talking about being a Fuhrer. On one survey in the history of Fellowship Church, only one survey. Which, by the way, this has nothing to do with this text. Survey. Back in the day, we had 700 people, and we did all these, these, these scientific tests. And we asked people, what do you want in a church? I thought that'd be cool. When we read the report, I just started laughing. I go, we're doing the exact opposite. What, what did they want to hear the Word of God in context? Is that what they wanted? Of what the people want. Wow. So leaders take people not where they want to go, where they need to go. If we had stopped there and changed, we'd have 700 people instead of 20-something thousand people. So I'm here to tell you the majority... Well, that proves that this must be from God because they have so many people there. ...is usually wrong. We want comfort. I do. I want to hang out in the nest. Keep the nest soft. Keep the grass in there. Keep the feathers in there. I want to chill. Give me a Perrier with a little umbrella in it and, and massage my feet. That's what I want. But God takes out the material. God takes out the comfortable stuff. God uses those sticks to prick us and to motivate us and to stimulate us to do what? Fly. We can fly this isn't from any biblical text at all.
He's just created the impression that this is a Bible teaching, and it's not. Like eagles. So this, so this culture of the vulture can spread very, very rapidly. How do you know if you're talking to a vulture? They. How do you know if you're talking to a vulture? Can't. How do you know if you're talking to a vulture? It's always negative. They, they, they spread a bad report. <laughs> Just negative. Everything is bad. And then they grumbled. And then, then they used they all the time. So verse 2, Numbers 14, all the Israelites grumbled. And the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt. They wanted to go back to slavery, go back to the whip and chain. What? Look at verse 4. And they, again, said to each other, we should choose, committee, we should choose, what does everybody else think? We should choose a maintainer, not a leader, a maintainer to go back to Egypt. Their worst fear was what? Oh no, we might die in the wilderness. What if we don't claim? The no, their spirit was they didn't trust in God and they despised him. The, 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 the promised land, you know, that scenario sickness. What if we die in the wilderness? There's rattlesnakes here and Gila monsters in the sun. Oh, what if we died? God's patient. He's forgiving. He's merciful. God, though, gave them 10 opportunities to repent. They didn't do it. God has a fuse length. God said, you know what? You're not going to enter my land. Because you're a vulture culture, you're not going to enter the tract. You're going to clock out. You're going to die in the wilderness. So their worst nightmare became a reality. They died. They became roadkill in the wilderness. And don't you know when they were becoming roadkill, they were like, wow, we could have claimed the land and opened up a can and we could be in the land of milk and honey right now. But instead, we're becoming roadkill. And then the Bible says they cried. They felt guilty. Oh, God, we messed up. <laughs> Snot dripping out of their nose. Tears. <laughs> and you're like, man, come on, God. I mean, seems like they're repenting. He gave them ten opportunities. Ten. They weren't repenting. They were just feeling guilty. Repenting of what exactly? Being negative? The text says that they despised God and didn't believe him. There's a difference in feeling guilty than biblical repentance. Repentance is making an about face. It's, it's, it's turning the other direction. Yes, we have to feel remorse and regret. We have to be willing, though, to turn from that sin, which they... We're not willing to do. They died. Then 40 years later, this should have taken them a couple of weeks to come. 40 years later, the eagles, Joshua and Caleb, soared into the promised land. Thank you, church. I want to thank everybody. If you're watching this on television, online, at all of our campuses, thank you for being eagles. Let me tell you what's happening in fellowship. I just had the opportunity several days. And now to steer into him as the ultimate example of somebody who's an eagle. Days ago to share in depth with 200 of our leaders about what's going on. And so often things are moving so fast here. We're flying so fast and so high. 
I forget what's going on. You want to know what's going on in fellowship? You want to realize what's happening? Yeah, I can tell you do. We have something. Yeah, thank you. We have something. Yeah. We have, help me, please. We have something at fellowship called C3 Global. C3 Global is a ministry to pastors and leaders around the world. We have a connection. To teach them how to not handle the biblical text correctly and how to vision cast and to obfuscate and disobey God regarding what a pastor is supposed to do. Connection and alliance with churches all over the place. We do whiteboard sessions, leadership training. We help leaders. It's an organic, holistic approach to pastors and their families. Did you realize last month that over 500 pastors quit the ministry? 500. Now I come from a pastor's home and have a heart for pastors. I believe the church is the hope of the world, the only institution that Jesus built. Do you know why pastors quit? Number one, congregational abuse. Number two, they're not paid enough. Right, they don't have private jets like you do. And number three, their priorities get totally out of whack. Right, because that's what you teach them to do. So we have Dr. Claude Thomas, an amazing leader, who is president of C3 Global. We go all over North America and the world to help pastors. That is what's happening at Fellowship Church. We're truly a church without walls. One of the things that C3 Global is doing is we have provided this past year over one million meals in Haiti. One million. And this next... Again, notice that if we were to go to uh, Luke 24, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations... And Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching all that I have commanded. Um, well, we're looking at vision creep here. He, he has a competing vision. He is also misusing Jesus' resources to fulfill a vision that Jesus did not give. Next year, we'll be the number one organization to help the needy the downtrodden and destitute in Haiti. I'm talking about a ministry of Fellowship Church. We also have the C3 Conference. It's one of the amazing leadership conferences in the world. So again, this is a church without walls. We have record attendance and record registrations already. Thank you, because people are talking about you all over the place, and we bring in leaders, men and women from all over, everywhere, to talk about the church and to talk about the raw and the real when it comes to leadership. So we're thrilled about this. Something else that we've done recently, Lisa and I wrote a book called The Sex Experiment. It's been a New York Times bestseller. We have given all the advance and all the royalties go to fellowship. Don't clap. It's just what we want to do. We have a generous church. God's a generous God. You're generous people. It starts with, with, with the leader. And I'm happy. We're happy to do this. Usually during the week, we travel somewhere around the country teaching people about the beauty of sex, teaching people about the sexual revolution that starts with God because we've allowed our culture to hijack sex from us. And it's time that we... Right. Yeah, that's what the problem is has nothing to do with people being born dead in trespasses and sins and rebelling against God. 
No, it's that we've let the world take away the, the sex thing from us, the church. Oh, brother. We started and talk about something God was not shy to create. So churches all over the place are doing the sex experiment. So be in prayer for our church and what we're doing. Furthermore, in our children's ministry, we have one of the largest children's ministry. One of the lar- this sounds like Rick Warren's update from Rwanda. I mean, all these great things that they're doing, all of them off topic, off vision, off mission. Largest children's ministries in the world. That's great. That's fine. We have one of the largest churches in the world. That's great. That's fine. But let me, let me tell you where the rubber meets the road. We write our own curriculum for children. It's biblically based. It's highly creative. Whenever you go somewhere that's not creative, don't blame God. God's a creative genius. Blame the leaders. Our curriculum is used in over 4,000 churches around the world. So every weekend, over 4,000 churches are using Elevate curriculum, and that's over... Yeah, in other words, they're spreading this virus of bad doctrine, false teaching, and Bible twisting to 4,000 other churches. 200,000 kids who were dialed in to Elevate. So somebody better clap. Here we clap for sports teams. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. And recently, it's just been translated into French, and it's just been translated into Spanish. We just had a meeting in California with a a Spanish organization that has over 40,000 churches, which we're going to partner with to get this curriculum to them, and also they'll help us with the conferences. Also, too, within the house, I'm talking about within the house, we have FC Creative. FC Creative. These are volunteers, you know. Most are volunteers. 95% are volunteers that help us create everything that we do. Why did you laugh? What happened? Oh, the eagle. That's okay. Yeah, the eagle. She loves it here. She loves it. So, Fellowship Creative. Our Fellowship Creative team has written three albums. One of the albums hit number three on iTunes. This is from within the church. Also to our campuses. I hope you know this is not our only campus. We have this campus. We have our online campus. We've already been seen in over 40 countries, people worshiping with us all over the place. We have a campus in Miami. We started five years ago with 11 people. This past Easter, we had 1,800 people in Miami. Come on, Miami. Also, our Fort Worth campus, we started several years ago. We're in overflow, in the overflow in there. We have like like five services. We've got to expand in Fort Worth. None of this has anything to do with the Word of God. This is, well, definitely vision creep that he's he's all celebrating. Yay already. I mean, that place is blowing up. We need to expand. It looks like in Miami. We need to expand in this area too with our lobbies, with some seating configuration, with some other updates we need. Think about our downtown Dallas campus amidst the skyscrapers. The growth over the last six months has been ridiculous. Think about Plano. We have over 2,000 people showing up in Plano. And then fellowshiplive.com, of course, that's our online campus. We have our very own 
online pastor. So, so man, that, that, should, that should thrill you. Make sure to visit some of these campuses around. It's, it's just supernatural. Miami, Fort Worth, Dallas, Plano, and gorgeous Grapevine. Alasso Ranch. Have you heard about our camp? How many people, how many people, how many people have never been to Alasso Ranch? Go ahead and be honest. Oh, man, shame on you. That is, guys, I'm telling you something. If, if, if you have ever seen a camp better than Alasso Ranch, after you go, you come and see me because I have never, ever seen one. I want you to know something. What's happening at Alasso Ranch is phenomenal. Several years ago, we bought 1,100 acres from a nonprofit organization for $300,000. Pretty good deal. 1,100 acres in East Texas for $300,000. Well, then we spent $40 million, $40 million before we had the money, $40 million to build this amazing camp. For kids, for adults, water parks, archery, ropes courses, horseback riding, basketball, fishing, canoeing. It goes on and on and on. The life change out there, the word alasso in the original language means life change. The life change out there has been spectacular. Absolutely spectacular. And this year we're partnering with an organization, just one of the things we're doing, that helps families of heroes who've been lost on the battlefields in the wars all over our world. And for free, for absolutely free, we're bringing in the family, families of these wounded warriors and those who have lost loved ones, men and women on the battlefields to give them just a, a week of retreat. But here's the deal. At Lost Ranch, we still owe 20 million. Got quiet. You know, the good news is we got the money to pay the 20 million off. Yeah, you got the money. We, we hadn't brought it in yet, but you got the money. Yeah. Hitting them up for more money to fulfill the vision, not the one Jesus gave for the church. Yeah, that's what you're going out now, clap. Yeah, that's what I thought. So here's what's going to happen. We're praying that God would prosper and bless many, many here. And he is. He's going to bless some of you financially in a crazy way. You'll be like, I'm not that smart. Where'd this money come from? God blesses people. Not everybody, but God blesses some people with money. Why? To fund the church. I mean, let's, let's be real. If, if people aren't blessed financially, how are we going to move the ball downfield? That's why the Bible talks about it so much. So it's exciting. So you'll be hearing more and more about the expansion of fellowship over the next several months. But I just want to thank you for being an unselfish church. Unselfish people grow great churches. This past year, let me brag again on Fellowship Church. I'll just brag. We had a record number of baptisms. Record. We baptized over 2,667 people. That's great because that's actually part of the Great Commission. 
So the best is yet to be for Fellowship Church. But I want to give you just a little bit of homework. The drums are playing, my favorite instrument. We're spurring the cue sappy music. The horse to the barn. I'm trying to think of an eagle metaphor I could use. Yeah, the eagle is flying to the nest. Number one, here's what I want you to do. I want you to incorporate God's vision in your life. Which vision would that be? What are you talking about? Define the word vision. God's vision is awesome for every single person here. It's eagle-like. Really? And where would I find it so that I can incorporate it into my life? God, show it to me. Reveal it to me. Oh, so I need it prophecy style. So God's word isn't enough. It's not sufficient. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all scripture is God breathed, profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness, so the man of God may be fully equipped, fully qualified for every good work. Apparently not, because now we need a direct vision from God. His word tells us how to do it, how to live it in every venue, in every slice of life. The Bible says where there is no vision, Proverbs 29, 18, the people perish. Uh, that means the prophetic word of God, the written word of God. How do they perish? The vultures. The vultures feed on stuff that's dead. Oh, no, those vultures. Something dead in your life? God wants to renew it. He wants to restore it. Really? So this, there's something dead in my life. God wants to restore it. No passages say that. It's time to, to grow new feathers, to fly, to soar. Yeah, hopefully they'll come in as eagle feathers, not turkey feathers. To incorporate God's vision. Also, too, remember to love the vultures in your life. Maybe you need to fly over some vultures. Maybe you're dating a vulture. Maybe you've got a kid and you go, man, this, 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 this child is kind of acting like a... Great, now we're teaching parents to see their kids as buzzards. This is just a miserable train wreck. Maybe you work for a... I don't know. God, give me your perspective, your dream. I want to fly in your framework. What does any of this mean? When those storms come, just fly to that high place and allow those winds to take you above it. Yeah, I have no idea what passage he's referring to there. Fly to a high place. Is that like your happy spot? Through it as you soar and see the tract of land that God wants you to attack. Are you an eagle or a vulture? Or a turkey. Let's stand together. I know you've heard this song many times, but we're going to sing it. What song? I don't want it to be your prayer. Oh, no. No, no. Please, no. I want it to be your theme as God takes us to great places. No, no, you're going to have him sing, I believe I can fly. Oh, you have got to be kidding me. I believe I can fly. 
Oh, they think that this is a praise song. We're eagles, not vultures. A perspective for my marriage, for my relationships, for my church. You don't need a crucified and risen Lord for any of this. This has nothing to do with sound biblical doctrine or anything to do with a sound, correct reading of God's word. This is just narcissistic pablum. For my family, for my habits, God, we want to fly. How about repent and be forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross? And soar as you give us the strength to be your people for this generation. We know time is slipping into the future, and the time is now to say, God, awaken the eagle in me. Oh, What a useless prayer. All right, so that was Ed Young and uh, his turkey sermon that was masquerading as some kind of a Bible eagle sermon. What a tragedy. What a train wreck. Oh, man. Pray for the folks out there at Fellowship. They're not being taught God's Word correctly. They're not hearing about their great God and Savior. They're basically being taught to pray, God, awaken the eagle within me. Like that has any meaning whatsoever. What I mean, what? Oh, man. Yeah, that's right. you got to be careful of those buzzards as well as the turkeys masquerading as eagles from the stage there at so-called churches. Sad. Absolutely sad. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. That's the thing we're supposed to be preaching about. Amen.